And now, it's Health Naturally with herbalist and natural therapist, Dennis Stewart. This is the best way to jump into a Friday afternoon. Of course, Dennis Stewart along with Health Naturally. And good afternoon, Dennis. What have you got for us coming up soon? Well, Mark, we've got an interesting topic to talk about today. We're well, going to look all at... All of them uh, are interesting, though. I know <laughs> they are, Mark, but you're a great enthusiast. Now, we're going to look at Australian plants and herbs and the way in which they will be make an impact on healthcare. Hello to Cathy at East Maitland. You've got a question for Dennis in regards to uterine fibroids. Yes, I'm just wondering what um, I can use to assist re- re- reduction of the size and treatment Kathy, without... Cathy, are, are you um, close to menopause? Yes. Okay. Two, and, two or three years off, I believe. And, and you've obviously had a meeting with your doctor and your gynaecologist regarding the condition? Well, I'm about to. I actually was at a, a just a massage therapist, female, and she actually recognised it. I didn't really, and um, so I'm going to be seeing them one today, and then it'll flow on, I'm sure. With, you need to get clarity as to the diagnosis. Uterine fibroids um, are lesions that are very common in women and the reason I asked if you were going through the menopause was that uh, generally speaking if a fibroid is is uh, tolerable um, as far as its symptoms are concerned that is bleeding etc mild bleeding uh, sometimes the medical attitude would be look um, you haven't got far to go until you go through the change and with that normally comes a considerable reduction in, in fibroidal activity. So I think before you uh, plan any strategy, A, you need to get clarity from your doctor and gynaecologist as to what the lesion actually is to make sure it is a fibroid if it hasn't been diagnosed. Secondly, um, talk to them about the management that they might offer you, particularly if you are, as you think you might be, approaching the menopause. Now, having said that, having said that, to be fair, there are a, a group of herbs that are, how can I call it, useful as far as the symptoms are concerned with reference to uterine fibroids. That is, they are particularly useful in lessening some of the bleeding that can be associated with it. And, and I'm not going to give a, a lecture on treating uterine fibroids with, with botanic medicine on, on, on radio, um, but I have lectured on it to, to graduate students. But the major herb that is used in the profession is a, a European herb known as Greater Burnet. And uh, that's not a common herb, but it has a great reputation for stemming um, bleeding conditions that have been diagnosed and related to a benign lesion such as a fibroid. So, yes, there is a herbal medicine approach that can be used, but it would only be used with the nod of the GP or the gynaecologist, particularly in the context that you might be already starting to move to a phase in your reproductive life where the condition might be self-resolving. But Greater Burnett is, uh, is a herb that I would always think about. Okay, and what about a dietary, just more, you know, natural, organic food? No, I don't think that comes into it. I think, to be fair between you and I, those sorts of things are a little bit too simplistic, and um, I take a a bit of an issue with the point that uh, organic can cure everything. I think that's that's not right. It can be nonsense. This condition, um, in my opinion, would not likely respond very effectively to any significant dietary change. 
um, it needs to be looked at from the point of view of addressing the lesion, either from a medical approach or using medicinal herbs that are spe- specific for that condition. All right, and I'm guessing, Dennis, you're not sort of having a crack at organic there. You're just saying oh, that... No, no, look, I'm not... I won't have a crack, that, but, yeah. um, I have a view on it that might disappoint some of the purists out there. Okay. And, and uh, I, I tend to think that it can be overemphasised. Uh, look at it th- this way, Mark, and... If, if you are a single mum and you've got a couple of kids and trying to feed those kids, are you going to uh, be too concerned about whether the vegetables are organic or well-grown normal Australian vegetables if the price differential is significant? Oh, I get that price is price, but I'm actually surprised to hear you say that. No, I'm not, because yeah. I see up where I come from, I see a lot of battlers. Mm. Every dollar is, uh, is important for them. And I believe in this country... We grow excellent vegetables without emphasising the organic side of it. Now, if you can afford organic, fine. But a lot of people can't. And a couple of dollars difference in a vegetable bill, if you like, is important for battlers. And there are more and more battlers trying to survive and food is getting more expensive. Dennis, we did have Joe for Mark's Point give us a call and he's a 69-year-old male. He wants some thoughts on uh, some red facial flushing. What might be causing it and and if there's anything he can do about it? Uh, Look, it could be related to a number of conditions. My uh, immediate thought is that it might be associated with what's called rosacea. That is a condition that manifests itself facially. I mainly see it in women, but it's not restricted just to women. And sometimes it's also characterised by pustular lesions. Um, A medical practitioner would probably prescribe a cream, such as Rosex, which is sometimes very, very effective. Sometimes when there are lesions of a pustular nature, an antibiotic might be used. Most of my experience with rosacea, if that is what this gentleman has, Mm. and I would be suggesting that he get clarification as to what it is, but most of my treatment with rosacea is based on using a bracket of herbs spearheaded by echinacea, golden seal and calendula in a liquid formulation uh, taken in a 5 mil dosage a couple of times a day uh, to address, if you like, the the activity of the the, um, inflammation. And I also use a cream... Uh, a GA cream based on glycerotinic acid, an extract of licorice, which works like a gem in, in repairing the skin and lessening some of the inflammation. If it's not that, it could be uh, something like a seborrheic uh, a dermatitis or even um, a mild eczema. But any skin condition that is red and inflamed really needs to be clarified and before anyone starts to um, take initiatives. Mm. But if it is rosacea, that's the way that I've treated it and treated it reasonably successfully over the years. Oral medication based on three antimicrobial natural antibiotic herbs with a topical management based on an extract of licorice. Alrighty, some great advice. Hope that helps you out, Joe. And also thank you, Cathy, at East Maitland for uh, chiming in as well. Still in the Maitland area, though, heading to Rutherford. And Lisa, you've got a question for Dennis around heel spurs and some herbal supplements and dosages, perhaps. That's right. How are you? Hello, Cathy. How are you? I'm Lisa. Thank you. Oh, I'm Lisa. <laughs> um, now, some time ago, you talked about heel spurs and yeah. taking celloids S79 and the SP96. Correct. Uh, which I got from your rooms at Cessnock and it helped me immensely. Great. Uh, now my partner's got a heel spur, uh-huh. um, but I can't remember the dosage. Okay. Is it just one each of those tablets? Look, the, 
I haven't got the um, the prescriber in front of me, but I think you'll find SP96 is double the dose of S79. Now, I know this sounds to listeners very esoteric and uh, a bit weird. Uh, let me just say that SP stands for sodium phosphate, and 96, if you like, is the number of tablets in the container. S79 stands for, for silica. And as you have experienced, those two remedies, those two remedies have helped a lot of people see their heel spurs resolved and you're nothing unusual when you say that it's helped them um, I had a gentleman in the other day who heard me talk about uh, these celloids as you as we call them particular minerals um, he's, he had never been to see me previously but he, pre he, he prefaced his conversation by saying uh, you you helped heal my uh, spurs by uh, recommending some silica and sodium phosphate that worked. Look, I think you'll find that sodium phosphate is double uh, silica, but you can uh, always ring and get information. What is happening in the regards to uh, some of the Australian plants? And uh, we're getting many of those lately in medicinal usage? Look, Mark, it's appropriate that you, you ask that question because listeners... We well, had it written down on the page oh. for so. <laughs> well, I've got It's right out of the gate, Dennis. I, I, I've got to lead you along, you know. I mean, the, um. the rest of the questions I might have some input in, but right out of the gate, we'll go with yours. <laughs> well, you might, listeners might be interested to know that uh, recently the uh, people of the Hunter Valley, uh, particularly growers and other interested people, come together to form a non-profit group, let me emphasise, a non-profit group uh, entitled Indigenous Plants for Health. And the 2NUR website will have details about uh, Indigenous Plants for Health. It's an organisation that I had a bit to do in establishing with others like Andrew Pengelly and other people that, like myself, have had an interest for years in looking at the possibility of Australian plants. So the hunter again leads. We've got to pat ourselves on the back. The hunter leads in being there in getting something seriously going with looking at the possibilities of Australian plants and herbs for their role in medicine. Because as you say, we've been mentioning over and over again, and, and to be fair, most Australian products, health products and supplements, are based on imported herbs from America, from Europe, from China. We're not providing a lot of material from our own sources. And interestingly, or sadly, many of the plants around us have not really been investigated and looked at from the perspective of finding out what they can offer for health care. That's the point of this organisation. So is that the main reason you think that we're not exploring enough with with, with some of our own herbs is that they just haven't had the the effort put into them or i think so or, or, I think, yeah i think I, I think that's got a lot to do with it and i think there's also a bit of a, a cultural thing here um being europeans and anglos um it's probably easier for us to relate to a, a tradition of herbal medicine that is steeped in European and American culture, and there's nothing the matter that I'm uh, the matter with that. I'm a product of that and believe in it strongly. So I, I do think there's been this sort of cultural uh, disinterest. Now, however, there is a, an, an assertive interest in looking at Australian plants, and it might interest you and listeners to know that 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I gave a two-day seminar um, conducted by Southern Cross Herbal School on the Central Coast. 
Uh, Southern Cross Her- Herbal School was subsequently handed over to the University of Newcastle. But I gave a two-day seminar entitled Australian Indigenous Herbs, um, 12 hours of lectures. And as far as I'm aware, they were the first lectures ever given in Australia on Indigenous herbs used by the Aboriginals and some of which were also taken up and used by some of the early colonists. Now, that was 20 years ago. Fortunately, that started a bit of interest and this association that we're talking about now, Settled in the Hunter, is going to take that interest a lot further. And why wouldn't there be an interest in it? Because already we have plants and trees around us that have an economic value. They have an economic value. And uh, you, you look at some of the most common plants around us. You look at the eucalyptus species. Now, it's a good example. The eucalypt, indigenous to this country, provides us with an essential oil. That essential oil we know of, it's, it's in many preparations. Where would we be without eucalyptus-based products? It's an example of an Australian herb that has already been exploited and is being exploited ongoingly. So, Dennis, what are some of the other ones that are okay. the, some of the other best examples? Great, great. Yeah. Look, look at the okay. Look at the the tea tree species. Uh, tea trees are uh, a loose term, uh, too loose, in fact. So, when we talk about tea tree, we really need to talk about members of that tea tree family. Most people relate to tea tree the one that's called Melaleuca alternifolia. And that is the one that has formed the basis of many uh, ointments, creams and lotions which are in our health food stores and pharmacy. Numerous companies have taken up the Melaleuca alternifolia, uh, the, the tea tree named uh, botanically uh, like that, and have extracted again the essential oil from it which has become a powerful agent, a powerful antimicrobial agent, which is capable of fighting infection, excellent for, for fungal conditions, particularly the toes and feet, uh, it, and uh, an excellent agent also to, to use in, um, in, in cleansing procedures. People, for instance, with acne uh, frequently will use uh, toiletries, soaps particularly, that incorporate a measure of tea tree oil, Melaleuca alternifolia. Ah, but let me take a little bit further. There's another another um, member of the tea tree family that's not as well known, but is coming into being well known because it's piggybacking on the New Zealand manuka. There is a tea tree known in this country as Leptospermum and Polygonatum. I will uh, not remember that. Uh, lep- <laughs> Leptospermum and Polygonatum. Some people refer to it as the Australian manuka. It's very much related to the manuka of New Zealand, which is Leptospermum scoparium. And manuka, the New Zealand manuka, has been shown to have an antibiotic or antiseptic property hundreds of times stronger than that which occurs in many other plants. And so it stormed the world. Now, the Leptospermum polygonatum, which grows in this country, even in this region, shares many of the characteristics of New Zealand manuka, and in honey, in honey preparations now, you'll find on our health food stores preparations extolling the virtue of jellybush, jellybush honey, which is making its way into ointments and creams in place of the imported New Zealand manuka. It's going to storm the scene and, as I've said, shares many of the excellent characteristics 
of the New Zealand manuka. So there are three uh, plants, if you like, which just scratch the surface. Uh, and we, if we're not sort of putting enough into investigating what else is out there in the bush, um, who knows what we're missing well, out on. So the interesting th- thing here was, for, for a moment, again, this will fascinate listeners. As a beekeeper, um, jelly bush honey was always considered to be rubbish. It was not a pleasant uh, honey to, to eat. It was hard to handle. It was hard to extract. So it was considered to be rubbishy stuff. You could... You'd have a difficulty giving it away, so to speak. Now, as a result, as a result of studying its chemistry and seeing that it contains constituents, antibiotic constituents, similar to that in the New Zealand manuka, this has changed the whole picture around for beekeepers and their jellybush honey. They don't want to give it away anymore. They want to charge <laughs> you a premium price for it, and rightly so, because the, the science done looking at Leptospermum uh, scoparium from New Zealand, the, the New Zealand manuka, the analysis, the chemical analysis of that has spilled over and given great impetus now in this country for beekeepers and producers to make a case for saying, hey, this is good. This is good. It may be as good as the New Zealand manuka. And I guess on the back of that, there are more and more beekeepers wanting to get involved in it, Oh, you would imagine. A- absolutely. I-, I remember not so long ago, for my own production of my own honey ointment, I sought to get some uh, uh, jellybush honey in a small amount from a producer up around Lismore. I had to battle. I got a little bit because... His wife was a patient of mine, so he did me a favour, but he kept emphasising that they were, they, were, they were supplying it now in 44-gallon drums, not oh, in wow. a couple of kilo packs, and look, good luck to them. But there again is an example of where an Australian plant, hitherto not seen to be worth very much, has now been shown to be capable of producing honey that is so medicinal that it purports to take on the New Zealand manuka. Something that's very, very exciting and... Uh, We've been talking about Australian plants and mm. the way in which they've been, up to this point, relatively neglected in medicine. Um, the good thing about being in Australia is our realisation that we're really part of Asia. And as a result of that, the further north you go, the more you are confronted with Asian plants which have already been shown to have medicinal characteristics and, in fact have a reputation of significance. and So are you talking more around the top end yes, and top correct. end Queensland? Correct. Getting up to the top, I frequently I will go up north to visit my son in, in Cairns and I, it's a totally different world, as you would appreciate. Mm. The, uh, the foliage, the, uh, the, uh, the, the whole countryside is different. It's very tropical. Now, in, that, in those sorts of areas, we increasingly find plants growing in that region that also grow in Asia and have a reputation around them. One of them that's quite outstanding, and interestingly, my first introduction to this herb was by the great German medical practitioner and and herbalist, Dr. Rudolf Weiss. In his book, the English translation simply called Herbal Medicine, which I consider to be one of the most remarkable modern texts on herbal medicine, he drew my attention to a herb called Orthosiphon stamineus. Now, li- listeners probably roll their eyebrows when we talk like that, but when we talk about herbs, it's important to talk about them 
by their botanical name, which is universally used around the world, whereas common names for herbs can be confusing and vary. But Orthocyphenstaminius was made famous and found to be made famous by the Dutch when they were in Indonesia as colonists and they were there for quite some time. They found that particularly the Javanese people were using a herb which they referred to as Kumis Kuching for a whole range of problems, but particularly for the failing kidney. And my alertness was, was drawn to this in reading the, the, the profile on this herb in Weiss's book. Now, Kumis Kuching, or known, also known as Java kidney tea, speaks for itself. I have been utilising in my own practice for quite a number of years. As far as I'm aware, I'm the only one using the herb here in Australia. But the point is, and this is the whole point, it is also an Australian herb by virtue of the fact that it belongs to that tropical zone in Australia, which is similar to the tropical zone in which it's found in Java in Indonesia. So here's an Australian herb that we've found, we've located it, it grows in Australia, but unrealised, not used by herbalists in this country, not appreciated, but now starting to make its name as a result of work done on Asian remedies, utilised in medicine, particularly in that case by the Dutch. Kind of comes back to where you started, Dennis, where uh, we're just not investigating uh, the herbs. Well, but it's starting. It's starting to. And that association that I mentioned, that's up on the website, the 2NUR website, the new association that has been formed, the non-profit organisation, community-based, Indigenous Plants for Health, that's the starting point. Uh, Myself, together with people like Andrew Pingelli, who has a PhD uh, from Newcastle University, uh, and he did his PhD looking at an Australian herb. Um, this will further what we're talking about today. All righty, we'll come back and talk about it in just a little bit more detail. And a reminder that if you're in the Millfield area on Sunday, the public school have got their annual community fair. I like the sound of this. You've got market stalls, live music, entertainment, an auction, and they've got a bit of uh, fence post ripping. Dennis, you'd be that'd be something you'd be into. You're, oh, you're on the farm. Doubt. Without a doubt, I'll be there. Uh, also, dancing, karate. Oh, uh, I'll be there. Karate? Are you oh, a karate expert? Oh, oh mate, no? am I ever. <laughs> I'll take that as a no. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a black belt. <laughs> Good afternoon to you, Mark. You're at Tea Gardens, and you've got some arthritis in your ankle, and hope that Dennis can help. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, thanks very much for the call, taking the call. Pleasure. Um, Dennis, I'm a, I'm a guy in mid-50s, yes. still working. Yes, good. Um, I'm... My right ankle plays up very, very bad with arthritis, and what happened is when I was a young boy, I broke it in about three places, so now I'm suffering pretty nasty arthritis. Okay. Uh, gets to the point that it sort of pains 24-7. Okay. Now, what you're looking at there is probably a settled osteoarthritic condition based on the, on the damage that you've, you've sustained. Um, look, I'm, I'll give you a couple of recommendations that uh, should help you. Don't, over, don't overlook the usefulness of, of topical applications. Now, there are topical applications that incorporate uh, arnica and incorporate a, a, a constituent from chilli. I won't mention names, but there are well-known topical applications that in the past we've mentioned on this program that incorporate arnica and chilli. 
Now, when they are used uh, regularly, topically that is, they are able to bring about a degree of relief that can take the edge off the acuteness of the pain. But what I say now is important. These, mm-hmm. the, these particular herbs, and particularly what's called the oleo resin of capsicum, that is in one of these, it will not work unless it's been applied for about four to five days in order to set up a local chemistry where it's being put on that starts to deplete, to, to deplete the message of pain. A lot of people only use these things for a day or two and say, oh, no, it didn't work. Look, uh, there is a basis for those preparations working. And in my opinion, Arnica and oleo resin of capsicum are two of the most important topical agents for seeking to manage your sort of condition. Now, very quickly, because time's getting away, I would be suggesting that if you're not using a glucosamine-based product, um, you, yep. ne- you need to give it a bit of a go. Um, okay. It can be okay. overrated. There's no doubt about that. But most medicinal substances uh, can be, uh, uh, how can I call it, go into overkill. But glucosamine is a useful substance. It takes a while to kick in. Um, it's more for the chronic nature of the condition. And the other thing that I would bring into it, and I'm a great fan of this and promote it vigorously, never overlook, never overlook the oldest, most well-documented and simple anti-inflammatory and mild analgesic in medicine, not just herbal medicine, and that is the willow bark. Some great advice and hope you uh, get the help you need there, Mark. Our last call for today, uh, Dennis, is actually Simon at Singleton. He wants to talk about a herbalist that you uh, apparently knew by the name of Fred Steed. Oh, I knew Fred. Yes, I knew Fred. <laughs> Who's calling? And looks like we've just Simon's just dropped out there, but uh, he obviously wanted to talk about Fred. Yeah. So what can you tell us about oh, look, Fred? Uh, I was fortunate enough in my younger years, a long, long time ago, to have moved amongst some very interesting characters and very skillful herbalists. Of which you are one, I might that. And uh, Fred Steed was one of those, mm. uh, a beautiful man. I think Fred was a seven-day Adventist and had a, a natural affinity for all things natural. He actually ran a little course in herbal medicine, which was used by the Herbalist Association to get their training program off the ground. He had people uh, going to see him. He had a property outside of Coffs Harbour, a tall, uh, lean man. He seemed to have quite an entourage with him whenever he came to the Herbalist Association meetings, which in those days were run at 30 King Street, Newtown, in the premises of, of Paul Wheeler. It was like a little, uh, how can I call it, secret society. I can actually imagine you uh, <laughs> in, in the very trendy, at that time, very trendy Newtown. I can see you there with oh, the long yeah. hair, Dennis. It, 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 yeah. it wasn't very trendy in those days, <laughs> in, in the early 70s. Everything comes and goes, But the, the older, older herbalists, including that lovely man, uh, used to meet there a couple of times a year and share knowledge, uh, conduct examinations for new members. And I had the great fortune of being able to take that association from its death throes, if you like, and turn it into one of the most successful natural therapy associations in Australia. And with only 30 seconds to go, Dennis, we did have an inquiry from Kim at Swansea. She wants to talk about thistle. Is that a native species and some uses? When when you talk about thistle, you have to be cautious as to what thistle you're speaking about. There's Blessed Thistle, there's St Mary's Thistle, and there's what's called Sow Thistle, which I think that's what you're probably talking about. That's the thistle that you feed to your birds, etc. Sow Thistle is known as um, Oleracea. 
Sonchus oleracea is its botanical name. I consider it to be indigenous to Australia because it's indigenous to the whole of the Asian axis. It grows naturally in New Zealand, where it's known as puha. It grows naturally in Australia. It's well-grown all throughout Asia. So I would argue that, OK, it belongs to be seen as an indigenous herb. South thistle, Sonchus oleracea, one of the best remedies I've ever used for veterinary purposes. I used to have goats in my younger days. <laughs> I won't go into that one program, I'll talk about it. If I ever had a sick goat... I used to feed them south thistle. It's amazing. Every time we come in, Dennis, you've always... So I used to do this, so I do that. I've got bees, I've had goats, I've got farms, yeah, yeah, so I've well, got herbal medicine. Yeah, Made gra- yeah. A great program as always. Yeah, it was good, Mark. Thank you. And we'll make sure we'll listen to it again next week. That's Dennis Stewart with Health Naturally on 2NURFM.